Welcome to Fellowship Safaris, conversations about people of color and their journeys to subspecialist training in their countries of origin and around the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Fellowship Safaris. I am really excited for our next guest. I think one of the things that has been really strongly spoken about by most of the people who went through the fellowship experience is mental health. And so I thought this was really important to be able to have a conversation with someone who has had a very lasting and huge impact on mental health, especially for fellows and those who are in transition but I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll let my guest introduce himself and his professional qualifications. Thank you, Jerry. My name is Chris Trevelyan, and I am a social worker, a master of social work in Toronto, Canada. And I have been working with medical trainees and fellows for a number of years in my capacity as a psychotherapist and educator. And I am also a senior psychoanalytic candidate at the Toronto Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis. Wow, that's really amazing to hear, Chris. I didn't even know the full breadth of all your professional qualifications. And I think that's really exciting to hear about. Jumping right into it, how did you come about working with fellows in various programs and in transition? I began working with medical students as a counselor and educator, and I gradually transitioned to working with postgraduate medical trainees, residents and fellows. And in that capacity, I met with residents and fellows in therapy as a psychotherapist, but I also ran workshops and facilitated support groups for residents and fellows in the different programs. And in that capacity, I began working with one fellow, Sarah Jassimi, who now works as an adolescent medicine physician. She was concerned that the program was not able to support the learning and specifically the emotional experience in the learning and the training of the fellows in the adolescent medicine program. And together, we thought about what might be added to the program to better support fellows in that emotional experience in order to protect against burnout, in order to build uh, a sense of community and solidarity among the fellows. And one model that we ended up drawing on was the Ballant Group format, which has been widely used in in medical uh, training and uh, for uh, practicing physicians to support them in their work with their patients both therapeutically, clinically, but also to support the mental health of the the practicing physicians. And so uh, not having formal training in Ballant Group myself, but having done a lot of reading about Ballant Groups, and at the time I was uh, already well underway in my psychoanalytic training, which contains a lot of the concepts that Ballant Groups are founded upon, we decided that I might facilitate a modified Ballant Group using some of the the tools and and format of the balance process to support the adolescent medicine fellows in their work. That's really great to hear, Chris. I'm going to take you a couple of steps back because I'm not sure 
all our listeners know what Balint is. Could you describe what Balint is and what a Balint group is? For sure. The Balint group process was developed by Michael and Enid Balint. Michael Balint was a physician who had emigrated to the United Kingdom from Hungary. And uh, his uh, wife, Enid Balint, was a social worker. And in London, together, they developed these groups to support physicians in their work because they believed that some of the psychoanalytic concepts could translate very usefully to supporting physicians for making sense of their day-to-day work with patients, and especially around particularly difficult emotional experiences with patients. They wanted to provide a, a space and a format for physicians to be able to support one another in a facilitated process to look at the underlying emotional experience of their work, not only to protect them against burnout and fatigue and uh, compassion fatigue uh, specifically, but also because they believed that the emotional experience of the physicians could be very useful guides for understanding patients better and for working more therapeutically with patients. I think that's a very interesting concept that Balint presents. And I know earlier you'd mentioned that it had started out with a conversation between yourself and a fellow after the fellow had brought up these concerns. How did you settle on Balint being the option in terms of addressing this, especially for adolescent medicine? That's a great question because there are different process groups and there are different models The Balin group seemed especially fitting because it specifically looks at countertransference and the emotional reactions that physicians have. And it also offered some modified formats that could include a focus on the fellows' interactions with their colleagues and team members and supervisors. So it was not just looking at physician-patient interactions, but physician-physician interactions or physician-nurse interactions, but also interactions within the hierarchy of the the training structure. So it opened up the balanced format and, and broadened its focus from the patient to other difficult relationships that the trainee may be experiencing. It was also a model that was more familiar to me given the concepts that it drew on because they're concepts that I draw on in my everyday practice as a psychotherapist. So it it felt like a good fit for me, and it also felt like a good fit for the adolescent medicine program at the time. Adolescent medicine also is a specialty that sort of sits on the border between physical and mental health, between medical and psychosocial concerns. And so it's a, a very complex, nebulous at times kind of work that the fellows were looking for uh, specific support in managing the emotional uh, aspects of. That's so interesting to hear about adolescent medicine being described as this complex nebulous. And I think that is so well put, Chris, to be honest, because sometimes when you actually ask us to go into details about exactly what do we do, it ends up being a difficult explanation at times because we end up doing so much. And I think it's just sort of like teetering between that border between the medical piece and the physical piece and also the mental health piece. What was one of the most challenging things while you were getting this balanced group started in the beginning? The first challenge was to persuade, I guess is a word, the Mm -hmm. program 
to make time and space for this because trainees are very busy and their academic time is very packed with a lot of different kinds of learning. And so getting the program and the buy-in from the leaders that this was time well spent and setting aside regular time on a monthly basis for the fellows to check in with one another, to be able to talk about their emotional experience rather than doing more medical learning around becoming medical experts per se in their specialty. But this was to help the fellows process their work and process their experience. So it had an explicit focus on the mental health of the trainees. And one of the ways that we were able to encourage the program to make time and space for the balance groups was not only did the program want indeed to support the mental health of the trainees, which was wonderful, but they also heard that the balance group could support the clinical work, that there's a way of working with patients, drawing on our emotional experience that can help forge greater alliances and work through to better outcomes. Have there been any other subspecialties that have been trying to introduce or have introduced balance group? Yes. After Mm -hmm. I transitioned to private practice, I was uh, hired as a consultant to support the development of a in-house set of facilitators who would offer balance groups to the general pediatric residents and then from there to other specialties within the hospital. So currently, there are a number of staff who facilitate balance groups for residents and for staff. And they've set that up so that the facilitators are at a bit of an arm's length from the groups that they facilitate. But they have now trained facilitators who have actually gotten official balance training to do that. So from that one group that started, I think, seven years ago now in the Adolescent Medicine Fellowship. It's now expanded across the hospital as a model for supporting both trainees and staff. What were some of the common themes that would come up amongst fellows during their fellowship experience when they'd come to Balance Group? Some of the themes that came out for international fellows included the difficulty of adapting to not just a new culture in the place in which they were now training, but specifically to a new medical culture, a complex set of written and unwritten rules around how medicine is practiced and the roles and responsibilities that each member is seen to have including the forms of relating and interacting that are considered competent and respectable. And most of these are not taught in any explicit way and have to be gradually intuited by the international fellow in their day-to-day work, which can be a very disorienting process. It's a kind of culture shock within a culture shock. There's the culture shock of being in a new new place, but then there's the culture shock of being within a very uh, different, sometimes subtly different medical culture in which they have to quickly hit the ground running and try to figure out how to adapt to. Within that, you know, many international fellows would also talk about the abrupt shift downward in their sense of autonomy and power. Many international fellows uh, are are coming into their fellowship from positions of independent practice or, or having had positions of leadership. 
and they're moving into trainee roles, often with very steep hierarchies within the training structure. So it can feel like a regression to an earlier developmental stage. And international fellows would speak of sometimes feeling under-recognized and even infantilized in a way in their own expertise and competence uh, as physicians. And that sometimes created feelings of self-doubt, even crises of confidence for international fellows seeking that extra training, but having already developed themselves as physicians in independent practice in advance. I think another really important theme that came up in many different ways for international fellows within the Ballant Group were the experiences of, of racism and colonial attitudes that they experienced in these training sites. You know, there's a, a kind of structure here of the center versus the periphery, where there are these hierarchies of knowledge and power. And so the fellows would describe microaggressions that they would experience for their outsider status within this larger training structure that they were trying to make a temporary home within. Part of what made this and, and tends to make this especially difficult for many of the international fellows is that these microaggressions were being experienced are experienced within programs that have an explicit set of values around diversity and equity and inclusion, but whose practices nonetheless retain hierarchical and colonial attitudes, attitudes that are often justified on the basis of knowledge and resource hierarchies, some of which might be real given the asymmetries in terms of the medical systems from one location to another. But these asymmetries can sustain elitist and, and racist thinking that international fellows have to grapple with on many levels in their day-to-day -day work, both with patients and also with colleagues. Another theme I think that often comes out is, is feelings of isolation and seeking connection with others with whom they can sense a, feel, a, a feeling of commonality and solidarity international fellows would bring up the sense of being separated from friends and family and how that might come up in their work with patients, specific challenges in the background for international fellows and how that might be impacting their work. Uh, international fellows who brought their family with them, for example, and, and have had to navigate the uh, overlapping cultural adaptations of their family members uh, in addition to their own efforts to adapt to that new context. A final theme I wanted to add was that many international fellows, especially toward their end of their fellowship, are carrying concerns about how they will transition back to their home practice contexts. That is not always a smooth and easy process. I think it's helpful to hear about all these themes because as you mentioned them, I have this sense of familiarity because I have experienced from each of these themes at different points in my postgraduate and fellowship training, and I'm just wondering, what were some of the ways or processes that you used when these themes came up for various fellows? What were some practical ways to be able to address some of these systemic, you know, issues that they'd come into contact with and some things that might not necessarily change? I think one of the main things that the balance group process offers is the experience of mutual recognition and mutual support and the sense that other fellows would be able to empathize with and support the case presenter or whoever was sharing their experience. And if the space was safe enough, then many of these difficult experiences 
could be discussed as a group and the international fellows could support one another and there could be a space where they might be able to teach fellows who were not international fellows who may not be experiencing some of the same microaggressions in the training environment about what that was like for the international fellows so there was this process of building up a sense of each other's experience over time in the training environment and in the interactions and that went a long way towards supporting the mental health of the fellows in that day-to-day experience from that though sometimes there were points of feedback and actionable items that could flow from the group discussion where feedback might be offered to some of the leadership about a particularly disturbing interaction or experience that one of the fellows had had. So there was sometimes follow-up and as felt safe and constructive, sometimes people were able to share feedback again outside of the group with the leadership of the program and with administration to try and address changes and make changes that needed to be made. I think the mutual recognition in and of itself helps to combat the isolation that many fellows feel in their work when there haven't been spaces created for people to debrief with one another and share their experience. Beyond that, the Ballant Group helps to make sense of the meaning of those emotional experiences and to try and convert them into something useful for physicians' everyday clinical work. And I'm so glad you've talked about just making sense of what the experience was and sort of just having these parallels, drawing these parallels between either this clinical experience and your personal experience. Could you talk about why it's important that you would constantly do that? It really used to impress me how we would discuss a particular clinical situation or a personal situation within a clinical space and we would draw these parallels. Why is it so important to identify these parallels? I think identifying the parallels can support empathy. It can support connection. It can support, again, mutual understanding. And the parallels you speak of are ones between the case presenter and the patient or the case presenter and the the other person in the case, whether that's a staff member or a colleague or a team member. But they can also include parallels between what's happening in the case that's being discussed and what's happening in the group as they discuss the case. So for example, maybe someone feels judged as they present their case and that parallels maybe how the patient had felt or maybe how the clinician had felt when they shared the case with the supervisor. And so picking up on those parallels could create empathy and a sense of commonality and close the gap sometimes between the different participants so to speak, so that it didn't feel so divisive and it didn't feel so unworkable. I really love when you talk about, you know, just getting these new spaces for that therapeutic engagement and re-engagement. Did you ever have instances during these sessions that we'd have fellows who are lost about the process or did not understand how to be able to use the process to help them through particular situations? Yes, I think it took some time for many fellows to find their feet in this kind of a discussion and this kind of group process, especially because many trainees from all sorts of different contexts 
have not had much support in discussing their emotional experience in their work. We know that in many medical cultures around the world, emotional experiences to be kept personal and to not be expressed and explored within the work environment or in the training environment. So being able to kind of settle into that and get one's feet wet, so to speak, over time and wade into it is really important. And the way that um, the adolescent medicine program works is because it's a two-year fellowship, there would always be some more seasoned people in the group, so to speak, who could offer leadership and, and modeling about how to engage in that kind of a process and kind of give a scaffolding for those who were finding their way. It's helpful to hear that there were other people who are unsettled because I remember my very first balance group, I was so uncomfortable because the minute I realized we have to talk about our feelings, I wanted to bolt immediately. <laughs> and I think what made it even more challenging was that we did most of our balance virtually. I don't think we ever did it like in person. So it was the challenge of, oh, suddenly we have to talk about you know, how we felt in a clinical experience and how that made us feel. And doing this with a virtual interface, which felt sometimes emotionally and like cognitively overwhelming. And I'm just wondering, since this started like about seven years ago, what has been the feedback over the years from a wellness perspective and from a practice perspective for the fellows who have been involved in Balint? And I guess this coming from maybe the division giving feedback or, you know, certain teachers and facilitators giving feedback about fellows. Yes. Early on, as a way of trying to justify and support the continuation of the Balint group, Sarah Jassimi, the fellow who helped to spearhead this and collaborated with me to get the Balint group started, did some research on the effectiveness of the balance group format for the fellows' uh, overall experience of their work. And what it highlighted was the fact that the balance group was felt to have supported the connection between the fellows and the sense of mutual support. It was seen as supporting people's day-to-day navigation and enjoyment of their work, which I think is a critical piece to emphasize, is that actually leaning into the emotional experience of the day-to-day work enhanced people's joy in their work and the meaning they drew from their day-to-day work. So that was borne out in the qualitative study, but it's also been borne out in the anecdotal accounts that I hear from the fellows on a consistent basis, and I know that they feed back to the program. When I transitioned to private practice, there was a request for funding because previously when this started, I was actually housed within the university and so was able to get the program started without having to pay for that. But since I've moved to private practice, they've gotten the funding to continue the program and they've secured the funding on the basis of the leadership's recognition of just how much of a difference this makes, both in and of itself, but also as a support for that wider culture of connectivity and empathy and valuing the mental health and the day-to-day experience of the trainees. 
I think it's so powerful when you talk about enhancing joy and, you know, enhancing the satisfaction that you get from working. On a personal note for you, Chris, why is it important for you to be involved in that process for fellows to be able to find these pockets and spaces that enhance their joy and enhance joy in their work? Why is this so important for you? Well, I think as a clinician, as a psychotherapist, I work closely with people. And so I'm familiar in my own life with the challenge of sustaining my energy and sustaining my engagement in that close work and in those relationships. And I found in my own work that actually having spaces to process and elaborate my own emotional experience has added to the vitality of my work and supported the therapeutic, I think, potential of that work. And so in my capacity as a psychotherapist, working with so many physicians and hearing about the challenges they face in sustaining themselves in the amount of work that they must do and and the stories they hear and uh, the complexity of the decisions they must make, seeing the challenges that physicians face with their own emotional life, as physicians, encouraged me to want to facilitate a process for them to make use of and value that emotional experience in order to bring their practice more to life and and to combat burnout. I think that burnout more often comes from trying to check out and move away from the emotion as opposed to leaning in. I think it's the combination of valuing emotion and leaning into emotion with a collective culture and a collective focus on debriefing and metabolizing emotional experience, normalizing emotional experience. It's that combination that I think supports that joy in the work. And I think that's true across different specialties. I think that's true for all physicians and for all clinicians. No, it's so helpful to hear you say that because I think in another conversation, I've actually heard you say that clinicians also deserve to be cared for. And I really appreciate you being able to expound more on that. I wanted to just circle back to one of the other themes that you mentioned from much earlier, that a lot of people after practice or as they're in that transition to practice stage, they do have a lot of challenges, especially being able to transition back to their countries, being able to transition back to their original hospitals of training. What are some practical things that fellows who are in transition can actively start doing that helps with that transition? I think that the transition back can be very challenging for many, especially when the learning that is being brought back may or may not be smoothly integrated into the existing practices and understandings of that local context. And so the fellow in returning to a position of leadership, may find themselves welcomed back and eagerly sought, but may also find themselves feeling as though some of what they would like to share or would like to integrate into the existing practices may be resisted 
it can be a bit of a, a shock to return as much as it can also be a welcome one. My experience here is somewhat limited because I rarely continue yeah. mm-hmm. to follow international fellows after they have returned. So oh, mm-hmm. I, I hear about what is being anticipated. I hear snippets, but yeah. I've not worked very closely with people in that transition in an ongoing way. Mm-hmm. So this is like something that's a bit beyond my scope. That's okay. I think it's important that we mention that this is what is to be anticipated. And being able to highlight that is really important because during your fellowship and part of transition is at least doing what to be able to anticipate. So I think that should be okay. What would be your piece of mental health advice to a fellow who's in training and is sort of at a mental health crossroad, as it were, and they're trying to figure out what can I do in my moment you know, what's a piece of advice that you would give this person? I would encourage someone to honor and take seriously their emotional experience in their work and to see that emotional experience as intelligible and useful and and to trust that their reactions to their different encounters have a value and need not be suppressed or stigmatized, or shrouded in shame and silence, but to be honored within and hopefully, ideally, to be shared and processed in safe spaces with people who share those experiences in their own way and can help to make sense of those experiences, ideally within your fellowship team, and hopefully to, in some ways, be able to support that culture for one's colleagues as well, in which these emotional experiences are treated as valuable and as non-shameful parts of one's medical life. Indeed, as vital to doing good work and to finding joy in that work and sustaining oneself in that work. You spoke earlier, Jerry, about you know this idea that physicians, clinicians need to be cared for as well. And I think that this divide between who is sick and who is not, who is in need of care and who is not, I think that that stark divide between provider and patient can feed into a mentality wherein the physician has no needs and the physician is somehow self-sufficient, not dependent on outside sources of care and not at, at its worst, not in need of care. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to combat in making spaces and in honoring the need for physicians and for fellows to metabolize their difficult emotional experience with others and build a sense of of common ground and connection and to value that experience in their ongoing work. I absolutely love that because it's, I think, very proactive in terms of tearing down the shame around, you know, being able to lean into those emotions that have been embedded in medical education, in our training, that you're not supposed to feel, that set that aside or leave it at the door. So I really love that. What's the one piece of advice that you'd give to a program director or a decision maker or somebody who is trying to think through how to be more impactful 
in mental health for fellows? I would suggest that providing support for time for the mental health of the fellows and of the providers is essential to sustaining not only those fellows in their work, but a culture of meaning and connection. And it is part of the bedrock of good clinical care and and good medicine, that it's not something that should be outsourced or put upon the fellows to do on their own outside of work, but that some space must be made for honoring and attending to those needs within the work environment. And that even though time is so precious and there's so much to do and so much to learn, setting aside some time, like with the balance groups or other forms of of debriefing and connecting about emotional experience is incredibly valuable and has knock-on effects in all sorts of aspects of the experience on the team, with patients, in the work. And it uh, can be a huge difference maker in what the fellowship feels like. Make time for attending to the emotional experience and the mental health of the trainees and the providers in the program. That's amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through the work that you do and also the importance of things like Balint Group and the impact it has had in terms of fellows' mental health. And I think it was really, really crucial to just hear about some of the common themes that come up. And, you know, for any fellow who's listening or any person who is thinking about fellowship, I think it's really important to be mindful that these are some of the things that I encountered. And there are spaces and ideally there should be spaces to deal with your mental health and ways for you to be able to process some of the things that you experience during your clinical training. I know for sure, for me, you've had such a huge impact in my life, in my perspective as a clinician, as an individual. And that perspective change really, really helped me navigate a lot of the challenges that I experienced during my fellowship. Well, it means a lot for me to hear you say that, Jerry. It it has been an incredible privilege for me to work with you and learn from you. And not only in your time as a fellow, but uh, since and in this opportunity to talk with you about uh, some of these important themes in medical education I think it's really wonderful, Jerry, that you are doing this podcast for so many people to support them in their experience and in their training. I'm imagining it's going to make a huge difference for people for you to cover many different themes and try to give people a framework for making sense of their experience as they move through this challenging, but hopefully very rewarding time in their lives. Thank you so much, Chris. Do you have a way that people can be able to get in touch with you. Are you open to that? If someone may have questions or wants sure. to be able to connect with you, is there a way that yeah. they can be able to do so? You see, I'm not on social media, but they could connect with me, I guess, through email. They could just email me at at gmail.com. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Take care. You too. So glad you stayed tuned. Please get the word out and share it with at least three people. Make this episode like a chain letter 
share it, share it, share it. Come back for the next leg of our safari where we'll be talking about whatever you choose to do in life, there'll be an easy way and a hard way. Select what you want it to be. I don't think there's any easier paths in life. Don't settle for the path of least resistance. Listeners are advised to use their own judgment and discretion when applying any information discussed in this and all podcast episodes to their specific situation. Always seek the advice of a qualified professional if you have any concerns or questions regarding a particular subject matter. You can find this and other episodes of this podcast on our website at www.fellowshipsafaris.org. You can also find all our episodes on all podcast platforms. Reach out to us on social media as Fellowship Safaris on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And our Twitter handle is at fellowshipsafar. You could also send us an email on fellowshipsafaris at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and interacting with what you have to say about the Fellowship Safaris podcast. It takes a village to make this podcast. The executive producer and original music is done by Mokavi Maweu. The sound engineer is Tevin Sudi with thanks to AQ Studios. Graphic design was done by Benjamin Mboya. We would like to give a special shout out to Josephine Karianjahe and Melissa Mbogwa of Africa Podfest. All rights reserved by Dr. Jerry Karianjahe and the Fellowship Safaris podcast. <laughs>